All right, we're going to try a little experiment. I'm going to start, and you all can finish. I pledge allegiance to the flag. Very good. That's enough. (laughs) Switching gears slightly. Hey, I just met you, and this is crazy, but here's my number. Nice. Preaching achievement unlocked on that one. That was was good. Uh, In 1492, that's in there, right? When did you learn that? Long time ago, yeah. 1492. We need to talk later then because you have some skills that I need to know about. Uh, How about this one? Our Father, who art in heaven. Yep. We'll just do that much because we don't want to be a different kind of church by the end of this sermon. <laughs> I didn't talk to Reverend Ken about that before he left. So, Last one. Ready? If the glove don't fit. <laughs> Why is that in there, right? But it's there. There are certain common memories. Common memories that we share. There are things that live inside of our heads and our hearts that we don't even realize sometimes are there until someone calls them up, calls them back up. And sometimes the things that are in our memories that we carry with us, sometimes they actually don't mean anything to us, which is funny because we know them by heart, right? That's the phrase we use to talk about these things that we can just call upon in any given moment. Actually, I've talked to a lot of people in our tradition, in our church, in our community who have a precise moment when they remember something like the Lord's Prayer or a creed or something that was spoken in church over and over again that they knew by heart, but the moment they decided that they needed to leave was when they realized that it didn't carry meaning for them anymore. There's an odd paradox here in the things that we share sometimes that are so close to us and woven into who we are and have shaped us. And we share certain things as a result of the fact that we all know some of the same song lyrics, right? We all know some of the same prayers and speeches. Our message series leading up to the Easter holiday this year that Reverend Ken and I are preaching is called The World Between Us. And we're talking about how the world between us, between each of us, different people, different groups of people, different people who come from different places, that world in between us has a lot of exciting potential for connection, and intimacy, how there's something more interesting there even than if all of us were the same. And in that space, if it's left open, if we can travel to it together and inhabit it together, then there's a lot of possibility that opens up for us. We've talked about how listening is a really core and central practice that helps us get to that world between us. We've talked about how we can listen to the places where we're different, where we want different things. We've talked about how we can listen when we think we know what will happen, right? When we think we know what the other person is going to say, when we think we can complete their sentence, how we can choose instead to listen and see what possibilities open up there. And last week, Reverend Ken talked about how we can listen to the open and the very vulnerable spaces of our heartbreak and our disappointment. How sometimes we want to shut out those spaces. We don't want to go there, but when we inhabit them and listen to what they have to teach us, we can grow. So knowing that all of this is true, 
right? That we're different from each other, that we're unpredictable. We don't always know what's going to happen. And that because we crave connection, but we're not perfect, we will ultimately hurt each other and disappoint one another. Today I want to talk about how we tune our hearts then to listen to the things that we do share and to find the ways that we're not alone, even in this world where there are so many differences and so many hurts. There's a theory that a lot of sociologists talk about, a lot of business people talk about, a lot of kind of cultural commentary has been written about that started in 2004 with a guy named Chris Anderson writing in Wired magazine, of all places. It's called the long tail theory. And it basically, if you look at this graph, it explains how increasingly in the last 50 years or so, we've seen a shift. There used to be a lot more things on the left-hand side of this graph The left-hand side represents mass markets as are up there, or mass culture, or mainstream culture, right? Some of you lived in a time, I won't ask you to raise your hand unless you want to, when there were three stations on television, right? Three stations on television, many of you. I can only imagine. (laughs) Some, Some of us might remember when the radio had three or four or six or eight stations, right? That's the left-hand side of this graph. That's this idea that there was a common culture, a mass culture that we were all exposed to and all a part of. Over on the other side of this graph is Sirius XM radio, right? Or Spotify, right? The idea that there's technology that actually customizes a radio station that only you are listening to based on the preferences and the little tweaks you make here and there. The long tail says that because of globalization, because of the Internet, because of the fact that we can travel and move more freely than we ever have been able to before in human history, that there are now all of these niche markets. There are smaller communities. There are ways that we can connect based on preferences, based on interests. And it's a double-edged sword, this fact. For some people, it has been literally life-saving. One of the things that often isn't talked about when you talk about the long tail is the fact that this mass culture and this mass market and this mainstream idea left a lot of people out, often by design. And so for those people, having a place to connect, having a place to have a voice and have it amplified to others across the country, across the globe, is huge and a very good thing. And... Because of this long tail phenomenon and all these cultural currents of the last 50 years, increasingly we share less. Some of you didn't know the words to call me maybe, (laughs) right? So that's an example of something we do share, probably more than we might want to. Increasingly there are more things on that long tail and that other side of the graph gets shorter and shorter. And because we share less, there's some anxiety around that. There's a sense of scarcity. Who are we if we don't have these things in common, if we don't hold all these things the same? I saw a tweet go around on Twitter a couple years ago that I've seen over and over again since, and it is just a mic drop moment for our culture right now. Why are white people scared about becoming a minority in the 2040s? Are minorities treated badly in America or something? That's a truth bomb. 
being a minority, being a part of a smaller community is not a bad thing, right? What this comment, this very incisive comment, highlights is that it's the treatment that makes the difference. Being different is just a fact. But layering on policies or prescriptions or any kind of treatment that makes a distinction between different groups of people, that's where the hurt can come in. Ken's message last week talks about this. He started with a place of very personal hurt and disappointment, a story about that from his own life. But really, at the end of the day, it was talking about how we hurt each other when our dreams and our visions diverge sometimes. And when we really open up to the enormity of this, to the heartbreak that is all around us, and listen to it, it can be overwhelming. It can be anxiety-producing and scary and make us wonder what we still have in common, how we will ever move forward from this place. I have a friend who is a social worker, a pretty new social worker, and she just got a new job doing counseling in Center City, Philadelphia. There are people who come to see her every day who live on the streets, who live in shelters, who live in very unstable situations, sometimes couch surfing from friend to friend or family member to family member. And she sees, she says, on a typical day, seven, eight, or nine clients in a day, in and out. She and I were talking recently about how this job has affected her. And she loves it in one sense. It's fulfilling. She's doing the work that she was trained to do. But she said, I noticed something disturbing recently that I just don't know what to do with. When she leaves her job in Center City, she walks to the subway. And just as she always has, she passes people who live on the streets. These are the people she works with now every day. These are the people that she is well equipped to have conversations with. She knows how to support them. She knows how to help them access the services that might help them live and thrive. But she says, paradoxically, now when I walk past them, the last thing I want to do is talk to them. I keep my head down. At some point, I realized, she said, when I leave the office, I'm done. It's the last thing I want to do to connect with those folks. And she said, that, that bitterness I feel and that ease in shutting it out is something that scares me. I could relate to her story. Because I think while it's a specific story, it relates to that fear that some of us have that if we open up our hearts, that if we start practicing compassion, that at some point it will overwhelm us. And then what does that mean? What does that mean about us? When I was in my 20s, before I went into divinity school to become a minister, I worked for about five years after college in a nonprofit organization that worked with low-income people living in the city of Washington, D.C. And one of my jobs, because at a nonprofit, you always have six jobs, right? One of my jobs was helping to run a youth program where the kids who came to our program were between the ages of 13 and 18, but they were dealing with a lot of the same kinds of difficulties and instability and insecurity as the people my friend saw in her counseling practice. And I remember getting to a similar point where suddenly after opening my heart, after learning so much, after 
feeling so rewarded by what I was doing for a while, something shifted. And I started to become disturbed by the fact that I knew that I would do whatever was in my power for my kids, right, for the kids that I knew and were in my program and had a relationship with me. But I couldn't worry so much about everybody else. That started to scare me. It started to make me wonder what that meant about compassion, about the limits of it, about my own heart. I don't know that I have a perfect answer for any of us. I will tell you, though, a story that helped me, that I actually heard in church, believe it or not. It's not a church story. It just happened to come up in a sermon given by my minister at the time. Does anyone remember the myth of Atlas, the Greek myth of Atlas? So I thought I knew that story, right? When I think of Atlas, I think of this guy, right? Buff, ripped, Greek god, holding up the world. This is a bronze statue of Atlas that's in Rockefeller Center in New York City. This is the perfect American archetype image of Atlas, right? He's even standing in front of a skyscraper, for God's sakes. I thought of Atlas as this tough, strong, sacrificial story. The Greek god who held the world on his shoulders. But if you actually know the story of Atlas, you know that that's not really what it's about. He, he wasn't a CrossFit athlete. He was not doing this because he was some kind of badass lifter. Atlas was in a war. There was a war between his group of gods and a different group of gods, and his side lost. Holding this up was his punishment. When he survived the war, the winning side banished him to the edge of the earth, And he's actually not holding up the world, as I thought of it. He's holding up the heavens. He stands on the edge of the earth for all eternity, holding up the moon and the sun and the stars and the clouds and the sky. That was his punishment. Keeping the heavens separate from the earth. This is more what it looked like to be Atlas. That guy doesn't look so happy, does it? This face on that statue is a little more relatable. I know that I have experienced this kind of heaviness when I feel like there is something bearing down on my shoulders that I have to carry. I think we notice it not when we've made a conscious choice to sacrifice, but instead when somehow we find something foisted upon us. When we feel like our lives are being held hostage by a burden that we didn't choose. As a woman, I know this just a little bit, not even being a wife or a mother at this point in my life, but still feeling that pressure to do it all, to be it all, to please people. I think as men, some of us might know it as that pressure to stay strong, to look like the first Atlas, right? To never show weakness in the face of a tough and hurtful world. Our kids carry some burdens, They might feel the pressure to look perfect, to get A's, to do well in all of these communities of overachievers where we all have honor roll stickers on our bumpers, right? 
I think older adults know this when they don't want to be a burden to someone else and maybe carry too much on their shoulders for too long because of it. And I think all of us experience it a little bit in that phrase that's out there that seems like such a good thing, right? That we want to be good people. What does that mean? That we want to be good citizens or employees or parents or children or siblings. Sometimes all of that can get a little bit overwhelming, particularly when we forget what we all have in common and when we begin to feel alone in it. When I was listening to my friend tell her story, my friend, the social worker, one of the first things that came up for me was this resistance to this idea that has been popping up over and over again for me that I don't know what to do with, that I'm recognizing more and more how in our culture and in our country, we treat everything as personal instead of communal. We have a tendency to carry successes and failures on our own shoulders instead of sharing them and inviting other people to carry them with us. And when it's a success, it might seem like a great thing to own it all, right? But it's a double-edged sword. You can't really have one or the other. When I think about the overwhelming problems in the world, rather than holding it all on my shoulders, what if I use that energy to invite others in? Maybe to do that, we also have to use our energy to invite others in to share our joys and our triumphs. Maybe if we're all in this together, we have to do it both ways, whether we're celebrating or whether we're licking our wounds. Because if we privatize everything, if we're always the self-made man or the bearer of private shame, then we are missing out on that thing that drives us more than anything else that we want, which is connection. It might seem really difficult to imagine setting down whatever it is that we carry. Sometimes we get our identity from that after so long. That's how we know who Atlas is, right? He probably had hobbies. We don't know. We just know that one story. Our faith as Unitarian Universalists, though, teaches us that our identity doesn't come from the role that we play or the burden we carry or who we are to someone else. Our faith teaches us that we are inherently beloved, and worthy. It's what we remember every time we dedicate a child or a baby here in our community whenever a new life comes into this room. And we talk about how our faith believes that there is a love so special, we don't have to be special to be loved. We don't earn it. A baby is such a good example of that because they haven't done squat, right? <laughs> They are, in fact, the image of vulnerability. They need everything done for them, and yet our hearts know to care for and love them. It is the best evidence I've ever found of that truth that our faith preaches. When we remember that that is where our identity comes from, then maybe we can ground ourselves in something deeper and take risks instead of being distracted by the burden on our shoulders. Maybe we can even let the burden on our shoulders come down and trust that not everything will collapse as a result. It's why I think that our faith does prepare us to do the listening work to find what we share now. Because 
we share less and less of the things we used to think we shared. That has become so true and so visible for us in this moment in our country. But maybe there is new common ground that we can build from. Maybe we can have some practices of listening that will show us a new place to start. I'm going to give you two examples as we close of stories where people were able to do that. The first one we know the ending of. Isn't that nice when you can tell a story where it's already happened, you know it has a good ending? So we'll start there because that's the easy one. This behind me is Megan Phelps Roper. Has anyone seen this video on YouTube? A couple of you. Megan Phelps Roper is an ex-member of the Westboro Baptist Church. That caricature almost of um, a lot of things that I don't stand for and that I hope a lot of the people in this room don't stand for. A church that is mostly just one family, the Phelps family, that protests funerals, that holds up signs that say God hates gays, and a bunch of other people too. Not what I believe, and not what we believe here. Megan Phelps Roper was raised in this family, was raised in this church, and when she got into her 20s, she decided to do the new cool form of witness for the Westboro Baptist Church. She got on Twitter. She was the official voice on Twitter for Westboro Baptist Church. And when people would tweet hateful things at her, tweet criticisms, she said, I would respond with my custom mix of pop culture references, Bible quotes, and emojis. And I thought I was it. I was witnessing our values to the world. It seems hard to believe in today's environment of social media, but Megan Phelps Roper gave a TED Talk a couple months ago where she talked about how Twitter was what led her to leave the Westboro Baptist Church. The conversation she engaged on social media, on that forum that we all love to hate, right, where every idea has to be have 140 characters, that was her doorway to something different. A lot of people on Twitter just got into fights with her, and she got into fights with them, and that was the end of the story. But she said there were a few people who would come back over and over again, time after time, and actually started to get to know her. They started to build relationships. There was one guy named David who, uh, after talking with her for a few months, showed up to a protest and brought her a snack. Not because he had changed his opinion or she had changed hers. Now, not everyone can do this. But there were people who, over time, assumed that she had good intentions, assumed that she was doing what she was doing because she believed it was right and helpful for the world. And from that place, they were able to be curious about her. They asked her questions about her own life. They asked her how she came to her opinions. And she said the biggest factor, honestly, was that after I had built relationships with those people and had been able to ask them some of the same questions, she said they didn't just assume that what they believed was self-evident. They actually took the time to make the argument to me. They took the time to talk about how they had come to their beliefs. And she said, without that, I never would have seen the inconsistencies in my position, the inconsistencies in her scriptures, and I never would have left because I didn't know anything different. And screaming at each other for years had not produced that result. But talking and listening had. Now, we know the end of this story, 
which makes it seem a little more worthwhile to maybe try, right? The second story, we don't really know the ending of for the people involved. The second story comes from a blog called Urban Confessional, where all the bloggers, it was a project started by one blogger, but now there are a group of different bloggers who all engage in the same practice and then write about what happened when they did it. They show up in a public place and they carry a sign that just says, free listening. Free listening. There's so many stories that have been shared on this blog of all different kinds, and it's a fascinating thing to check out. But the one I'm going to share with you is from this last July, when a man who writes for that blog decided against his own political persuasion that he was going to go try a free listening experiment at the Republican National Convention. Yeah. He said, I I knew this was was going to be a challenge for me. I went into it curious about what it would be like for me to just simply listen to people I disagreed with on many different issues. The people who do this free listening practice don't have to stay completely silent, but the idea is that anything that they say or any questions that they ask is just to elicit further further, um, speech, further communication from the person they're listening to. And so he said, I sat there for, you know, a couple days, first few days of the convention, and it was pretty much what I expected. I heard a lot of political diatribes. I heard a lot of patriotic speeches. He said, I didn't hear anything that made me question my own views. And to be honest, he said, the attitudes of most people who came to talk to me didn't really make me want to connect with them any further. Until one woman came to talk to him a couple days into the convention. It started like all the other ones. On a hot day, she came up to him. She asked him a couple suspicious questions about why he was there, who he was writing for, right, whether there were any cameras anywhere. And once he'd satisfied her with his answers, she started to say, well, then, you know what? I know this isn't really the hot-button issue of the day anymore, but it's still important to me. I think abortion is murder, and I can't stand to live in a country where we allow it to happen. And that is why I'm here. That is why I care about the Republican Party, because it's the only party that stands up for life. This man took a deep breath. He struggled a little bit with this comment because he had friends. He had women that he knew and cared about who had made the difficult choice to have an abortion. He had sat with them as they sobbed back and forth over what the right thing to do was. And it totally poked him in the wrong place to hear someone talk about how people who would do this are monsters or murderers because he knew from his experience that it was more complicated than that. His friends were not monsters. And so he took a deep breath and he said, why don't you tell me a little bit more about how you came to that opinion? And suddenly something shifted for her. She started to cry. And she said, I believe what I believe because when I was 18, a doctor told me that I could never have children. Something was broken in my body. And I didn't want to believe it. I thought that if I just prayed that there would be a miracle one day, And I didn't tell my husband when I got married. We tried for years and years to have kids, and I prayed that something would happen, that the doctors were wrong, but I never got pregnant. 
And when my husband found out that I'd known this and kept it from him, he was so angry with me that he left me. And now here I am all alone with nothing to show for any of it. I'll never be a mother. There's a lot that I don't share with this woman. I don't share her policy perspective. I don't share the details of her story. But I do share the pain of knowing what it's like to have a hope dashed. I share the pain of a disappointment that cuts so deep that it turns into envy, that it makes me want to lash out at other people, that it makes me want others to suffer as much as I do. I can't pretend I'm so good and so perfect that I've never had that kind of a feeling. And because I share that feeling, I know that what it needs is not to be convinced of something. What it needs is to be healed. The man who was writing this blog post said, I didn't say anything to her, but I hope that it mattered that I heard her. And maybe when she has a conversation with someone else about this in the future, it will be her turn to hear someone else's story. This is what it feels like to let down the burden and share it with others. It's less satisfying sometimes. We don't know how it will end. But we can't do it all on our own. In conversations like that, I think we often feel that we do have to hold the weight of the world, have to solve it right there, have to convince the person of our perspective, or else everything will come crashing down. But Roe v. Wade didn't get overturned because that guy didn't say anything in that conversation, right? There's an element of trust and time and sharing this work that might actually help us achieve it. That might let us say it doesn't have to be all on each of us, but that it can be on us all together. There are still things in this world that we share, even if it seems like we're so different. So I do want to invite you all this week, as we are most weeks in this message series, to try a practice of listening. To try the same practice of listening that the blogger from Urban Confessional may have tried. Now, don't do it with an issue that pokes you in a tender place that has been hurt over and over and over again. Trust yourself. Right? If you read something on Facebook this week on your newsfeed or you hear a comment at work and it hits that tender place, that's like a 10, right? Don't start with a 10. You wouldn't go to the gym and pick up the heaviest weight. Look for a three or a four. Look for the things that maybe upset you, that you don't like, that you disagree with, but they don't hurt you. And maybe that's where we can start. Maybe we can start to see that this practice can actually be a practice of generosity. The generosity to keep quiet and to listen first and let the other person speak first. And then maybe we can see that none of us is as alone in our shame or in our pride as we might think we are. Amen. And may you all live in blessing.
Let's pray together. God of every single one of us. God who lives in the spaces between us. Who keeps our hearts beating. Who keeps our lungs taking in the air, expelling it back out again, connecting us with everyone and everything in the world that has ever lived. Help us see that there might be something bigger than what we know and what we carry on our shoulders in little ways, in manageable ways, in ways that can drip and trickle out throughout our whole lives, not needing anything to be fixed right in this moment, but instead seeing how unfolding itself can be a gift, how opening takes time, How the spring comes, but not in the moment we want it to. But more like in a moment when we didn't realize it had turned and then suddenly we see there it is. Help us feel that sense of trust that lets us lay some of our burdens down. And lets us hold out our hands to share them with each other. For these prayers that I've spoken out loud and for the prayers that each one of these people carries on their hearts today. We say amen.